Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Good to see everybody today. When I was younger, uh, I frequently fought with my sister, Annie. Uh, there are four of us Scott kids. Uh, I'm the eldest of the four. My brother, Corey, is just shy of three years younger than me. And then my sister, Annie, is eight years younger than me. And then my sister, Allison, or Allie, is 16 years younger than me. Surprise. Um, <laughs> I got along great with Allie. There's almost a generation between the two of us. We, we connected great. Annie and I fought like cats and dogs growing up. She was always kind of my bratty kid sister, right? Like it was just that, that age difference and the gender difference. And like, I remember one time we were bickering and my mom was like, why do you always fight with her? I said, well, mom, I love her. I just don't like her, which went over great um, with my mom. I, we just, we, I don't know how many times we got into it. We were bickering and fighting and, and my mom would tell me, she said, son, you need to choose your battles. Not everything is a fight. And she said it lots of times in lots of different ways. This week on Facebook, I asked my friends, have you ever been in a, a battle that you didn't need to fight? And it was interesting. I did a Facebook poll last week, and some answers were funny, and some answers were silly, and some were witty, and, and this time it was just pain. Every single time that someone mentioned, like they answered that question, it was just like you could tell it's coming from a place of heartache. And I know, I know that if we were all to load up in a bus today, it'd be a big bus. If we were to all load up in a bus and drive around to every place you ever got in a fight with someone that you care about, there'd be a story there, wouldn't there? Oh, yeah, I remember there. We were, man, we were at the Mickey D's. And she lit into me because I deserved it, and whoa, right? I, I just was wanting the milkshake. I don't know what happened. Um, you know, there's, every time, there's these places that we would know, like, oh, yeah, man, I remember that we got into it there. Wow. We tend to remember those places, and we tend to remember those things. And there's a place in Israel that is a place of deep memory, because so many fights happened there. <laughs> Over eight different civilizations lived there, sometimes with multiple layers of habitation that built up over the years. The reason that there are so many places is that Megiddo is a place of battle. Let me show you a picture. I didn't take this one. <laughs> this is uh, at the, on the poster there at the place. But this is the ancient site of Tel Megiddo. Okay. Actually, this has been a place of many, many, many battles. Its, its role in history as a place of battle goes way, way, way back. This place was probably settled not long after the Tower of Babel incident in Genesis. It, it very, very early on because it controls the trade route. The, the, the road that runs from north to south runs right by here. There were a lot of biblical battles that were fought right here. The city's only mentioned 12 times in the Hebrew Bible and once, maybe, in the New Testament, in Revelation 16. Joshua fought here in Joshua 12. Deborah and Barak fought here in Judges chapter 5. Josiah fought and died here in 2 Kings 23 and the parallel in 2 Chronicles 25. We're going to look at that in a second. And depending on who you listen to, 
there'll be one more battle here at the end of time. Some believe that this is the site of Armageddon. We're going to look at, at this place of battle today. So turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Chronicles 35. We don't often turn to 2 Chronicles. Uh, so if you need to look at the table of contents to help find it, that is not cheating. It's okay, all right? Uh, in my Bible, it's about 30% of the way through, maybe 35% of the way through, okay? Uh, hey, thanks for being here today. For those watching online, thanks for logging in. Appreciate you doing that. Uh, one thing I want to highlight, if you had not had a chance to take our Chapel Rock uh, Community Development Survey that we're doing, uh, that's really important. Uh, we believe that this is a tool that God has given us to kind of help set us up for the next however many years of ministry. And, and one of the best ways that we know to use that is to begin to uh, amalgamate all the, the talents and abilities and giftedness of our church. And that, it'll, it takes five minutes. Um, there's a kiosk in the lobby, and there's another one down the hall, actually, as you head toward the kids' wing. Um, if you do that online, there's a place for you guys watching online that you can do that as well. Uh, we really want to encourage as many of you as possible uh, to do that, so thank you. And if you're here visiting with us because one of your little ones was on stage, I just want you to know you're, you're welcome. My name is Casey. I'm the lead pastor. I'd love to meet you when we're done. Uh, please come say hi. So thanks for being here today. We're continuing a sermon series that we've been in for a few weeks called You Are Here. Uh, last fall, I had the opportunity to go with my dad and, and 45 other people, along with uh, Chapel Rock's own Jim and Rena Crane, were part of that trip, and uh, got to go to Israel. And this was something that was supposed to happen in 2020, but we had this little thing called COVID. Um, it kept getting shoved back. So we got to go, and one of the places we went, one of the first places we went, the first morning we were there, was this place of Megiddo. Uh, I hope to go back again one day, 2026, 2027. That's kind of what we're looking at. If that's something you'd be interested in, we'll have more information for you on the specifics of that, uh, that trip. Probably late next year, we'll begin to roll out some of the, okay, here's the dates and here's the cost and all that stuff. But just kind of put that on your mental radar. I'd love for you to go. I, it's, it's, it'll, it'll change the way you read the Bible. It's amazing. But I know that that's not possible for everybody. I, I get that. It's expensive. It's multi, several thousand dollars per head, per person to go. So, you know, I hope that this series can kind of scratch that itch if that's something you've always wanted to do, all right? Um, our place today is Megiddo, and I realize that this is less familiar than some of the other places we've talked about, right? Last week we talked about, you know, um, you know the, this place of baptism. We talked about a place, of, you know, Capernaum. We, like, we know these places, right? Megiddo, like, what is that? I've never even heard of that, all right? Like I said, it's only mentioned 12 times in the Old Testament. Megiddo lies at the, a really strategic spot. Let me show you a map that, that will kind of help, and it's a little bit washed out here. <laughs> if you want to turn around, it's really clear on that screen back there. Um, but you can see the red underline is where it is, and it's kind of hard to tell, but there's a road that runs, like, all the way kind of down and so you've got the coastline and then this, this, these central highlands um, in Israel. And this, this trade route, the Via Maris, the way of the sea, runs right down through there. And Megiddo controls the pass. So whoever controls Megiddo controls the, the taxes, right? Whoever has that has a strategic advantage over the whole region. Um, and, and so the, you've got this, and that's Israel's breadbasket. If you look up just a little bit to the, to the north of there, that's where, I mean, most of their food is grown there, these w wide, fertile fields um, that you can grow almost year-round because of the, you know, the weather's just awesome. 
This place is located or identified with uh, Tel El Mutasalim, which is Arabic. It means the mound of the governor. This is what's called a Tel, T-E-L, all right? And what that means is it's just, it's, uh, it's just built up layer after layer after layer of habitation. There have been eight civilizations that live there, sometimes with multiple destruction layers, like there'll be a, a battle, the city will burn, they'll build it up again, and, and that's happened like a bunch of times layer after layer after layer, and it, it, it gets built up. In fact, even in Jerusalem today, street level is 30 feet above where it was in Jesus' time. It just, it, they just keep building it. Um, it's been said that archaeology is the study of durable trash. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's the stuff that lasted, right? And they just, they just build this up. And because of its strategic location, uh, Megiddo has been a site of military importance and, and strategic uh, initiative since the Bronze Age. It, this goes way, way, way back. And in a little bit, we're going to read about one of the battles that took place there. But first, I want to take you there. Watch. There we go. I wanted to show you something. You can see behind me, tell Megiddo. This is an area called the Cut. I'm gonna spin this around here. You can see down through here, this is where they, they sliced out a section. And then, I don't know if you can see, back down in there, right there, no. So here's the thing. This was the first one that I shot of these and the sun was in my eyes. I pointed to the wrong spot, back off. Um, <laughs> it was, it was, you know, international travel will mess with you. I don't know what I was doing. What I'm trying to point at is the thing directly over my shoulder. Um, there's a little round circle, all right? And I'm, I'm trying to point at that, but I couldn't see very clearly. Uh, so, okay, watch the rest of it. There we go. Not really is an altar of human sacrifice. The Canaanites who lived here before the time of Jesus, um, long before, this is what God's people came in uh, in the conquest to stop. This is what they, the reason God sent them in is because human sacrifice was offered here. He sent his people in, they stopped it. And this became a place of battle for a long, long time because it controls, let me show you this, this valley. The strategic influence here is immense. That's what this place is. It's a place of battle. Now, if you're an archaeology nut, Megiddo is like Candyland. If you like history, it's like, oh, this is so cool. You know, it's been around for a long time. But I do not want you to think that, that you showed up at church today and got an archaeology lesson. That's not what this is about. 120 years ago, this German scholar, Gottlieb Schumacher, um, dug this trench that I refer to as the cut. That's what they call it, okay? Um, here's a picture of it. And you can see they just, they just dug right down through there. That little, the, to, just to the, the left of that lady's arm, that's that altar I was trying to point to in the video. You see the little steps up to it. That's where the Canaanites sacrificed children. It is not an accident that we are talking about this on January 22nd, which is National Right to Life Sunday. That's on purpose. And God sent his people in 
to stop that in conquest. People sometimes struggle with, like, how could God command his people to go in and do that? It was an act of judgment on a wicked, fallen community. They would sacrifice their children there. <laughs> this is another picture kind of from the other direction, looking down out, looking south out toward the valley, or excuse me, north out toward the valley there. I told you before, this is not an archaeology lesson. There's some of that that, ha that I have to tell you so you understand the importance of this place, but this is not about archaeology. Here's what this is about. Megiddo reminds God's people that they need to choose their battles and their battlefields wisely. The, the role of this place should teach us that we need to choose our battles and we need to choose our battlefields wisely. Make no mistake, church, we are in a battle. We are in a war. One of the major images of the church in the New Testament is that we're an army. Some of you probably sang the song when you were in Sunday school, right? I'm in the Lord's army, I'm in the Lord's army. We, 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 we teach our kids this, and there's a reason, because we are in a war that started maybe even before time when Lucifer rejected the authority of the Father. We are in a battle. But we need to understand that this place should teach us to choose our battles and our battlefields wisely. So what does that mean? Well, let's talk about choosing the right battle. I think there are a couple lessons here. We need to choose the right battle. There's a story in 2 Chronicles that probably is one of the best examples of this lesson I've ever run across in Scripture. Look with me at 2 Chronicles 35. Look at this. It says, after all this, so he'd been talking about the reign of Josiah. Let me give you a little quick background, right? Um, after you've got... Saul and David and Solomon, and then after Solomon, the Israel splits into two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. All of Israel's kings were garbage. Like, it was bad. bad. They're just bad. In the south, it was kind of a mixed bag. Some were good, some were okay, some were really bad. Josiah, who he's going to talk about, was one of the good ones. In fact, Josiah was the one that they, they made, he became king when he was eight years old. Can you imagine that? Eight-year-old king? But he was, he was actually one of the really good ones. Uh, he kind of led a national revival. People came back to the law. They found the book of the covenant and the temple, and, and there's this revival that happens. So, so Josiah is really one of the good ones. After when Josiah had set the temple in order, Necho, king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates. So he's, he's fighting like a resurgent Babylon. There's all this political, like international politics that's part of this we don't have time to go into today. But he, this is literally on the way. Remember I told you, this is the Via Maris. This is the way of the sea. It's the shortcut from Israel to the Euphrates. This is how you go. The road runs right through there. All right? And Josiah marched out to meet him in battle. But Necho sent messengers to him saying, what quarrel is there, king of Judah, between you and me? It is not you I am attacking at this time, but the house with which I am at war. God has told me to hurry, so stop opposing God who is with me, or he will destroy you. Now at this point, you, <laughs> Pharaoh is speaking for God. We don't know whether or not he's telling the truth in this narrative. He could totally be lying. Pharaohs did that occasionally in the Bible, like lie through their teeth. We don't know. Is he telling the truth? Is he, we don't know at this point in the story. Let's find out. Josiah, however, would not turn away from him, but disguised himself to engage him 
in battle. Let's pause right there. So in ancient warfare, the king had the best armor, right? You give the best resources to the king. The king had the best armor. He had a flag designating him as a standard as the king. He had a chariot that designated him as the king. It, it should be obvious who's in charge there. He puts on a disguise because he's just itching for a fight. Maybe he wants, he wants a, you know, a, a notch in his belt, right? Like, I took on Pharaoh and I beat him in a fight. I don't know. But he pretends to be somebody he's not because he's itching for a fight. You ever do that? You ever pretend you're somebody you're not? You ever lay down the mantle of Christian because you're just itching for a fight? I'm just not going to wear that label for a while because I want to get in there and mix it up. It doesn't work out well for Josiah. Let's keep going. He would not listen to what Necho had said at God's command. Turns out the Pharaoh was telling the truth. That God was trying to use the Pharaoh to warn Josiah, hey, back off, not your fight. Stay away. But went to fight him on the plain of Megiddo. It happened right there. Archers shot King Josiah, and he told his officers, take me away, I am badly wounded. Megiddo is in Galilee. Now, that, that's important here. So they took him out of his chariot, put him in his other chariot, and brought him to Jerusalem, where he died. Do you know how far it is from Galilee to Jerusalem? Even by chariot, it's, it's an all-day thing, and there might have been an overnight. It's rough country. Josiah died a long and painful death because he fought a fight he had no business fighting. He was buried in the tombs of his ancestors and Judah and Jerusalem mourned for him. Jeremiah, that's Jeremiah the prophet who wrote the book of Jeremiah in your Bible, same dude. Jeremiah composed laments for Josiah and to this day all the male and female singers commemorate Josiah in the laments. These became a tradition in Israel and are written about in the laments. Now, we don't have record of that. It's not in the book of Lamentations, though it does mention the king, and some scholars think, well, maybe that's who he's talking about. Even after this mistake he made, the passage seems to serve as kind of a benediction on him. He really was a good king. He was beloved by his people. And I think one lesson here in the text for us is that you shouldn't let one misadventure, you shouldn't let one bad decision determine your whole story. It's not the end of the story. But I would argue that it's better if you don't make those bad decisions. God can still do something good out of brokenness. We talk about that here at Chapel Rock, but it's better to not, not, not be the broken thing, right? Like that's a better thing. We've got to choose the right battle. The Lord's consistent message in, in both the Mosaic Law and in the preaching of the prophets is that Israel was to rely on Yahweh to lead them and by extension to refrain from getting embroiled in the international power politics of their day. Like I said, we don't have time to go in. There's this whole thing with like Assyria and Babylon and Egypt and they're constantly fighting and Israel is in the middle, literally in the middle of them all and they stuck their nose where it didn't belong and it got punched. You ever do that? You ever jump into a fight that's not your fight? You get hurt, and you're like, God, how could you let this happen? Duh. You weren't supposed to be there in the first place. And because God does not change, I can't help but wonder if sometimes God refuses to answer our prayers for relief 
from various culture war conflicts that we shouldn't have been involved in in the first place. Let me tell you a story. About one, the, the, <laughs> the one time in my whole life I ever got into a fist fight uh, with anyone that was not named Corey Scott. Um, <laughs> I, I met Dan Bach, B-A-A-C-K, uh, in third grade. We went to the same grade school. We just clicked. Two, two nerds just on, resonating on hyper-nerddom, right? Like we were the same. And, and um, we just we really became like just best buds, had the same, managed to be the same third grade class, same fourth grade class, same fifth grade class, and then we went to middle school at South Middle School uh, in Joplin, Missouri, and a lot of the same classes, a lot of the same teachers, and we just, we're, we're buds. And one day on the playground, we got into a fight about, an argument about whose dad was smarter. This is a totally true story. Because my dad taught preaching in New Testament at Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri. His dad taught math and business management at Missouri Southern State College, also in Joplin. Can, can you see this scene? Two nerds arguing about whose nerdy dad was nerdier, right? Like, <laughs> and somehow, and I still to this day, I'm 46 years old, and I do not understand the physics of how this happened. We both managed to hit each other in the gut at the same time. I don't know how that happens, but we dropped each other. <laughs> Went down. Two nerds laying in the gravel. Oh, my God. Pathetic. An MMA fight that was not. Um... Now, in that moment, in that moment, I could have rightly prayed, God, how could you let this happen? How, wh why, didn't I, why didn't I win, God? I was trying to defend the honor of your servant. Because his dad taught at a secular school. <laughs> and they were, they, they were Lutherans, but whatever. Um, <laughs> and I think in that moment, God could have rightly replied, why were you fighting when with your friend when I told you to even love your enemies? Oh, yeah. Church, we've been fighting a culture war for 50 years. Has it worked? Is our society more Christian than it was? I don't think so. Do y'all remember the war on Halloween? Remember that in the 80s? I remember that. It's alternative, you know, Halloween alternatives and stuff like that. I grew up with that. Neowalla, it's Halloween backwards. <laughs> it, it's a, it was a thing. It was a, like for a hot minute, it was a thing. Did you know that Halloween is now the, the second biggest moneymaker for retailers after Christmas? So like... I don't think that war worked. Maybe it wasn't the right fight. Maybe that was a distraction from the real fight for people's souls. For a society that's built around discipleship to Jesus. Church, if Megiddo teaches you nothing else, it should teach you to choose the right battle. There's a reason we're doing this on National Right to Life Sunday. I do think that that's the right fight for the church to be in. But you need to understand, it's more than just trying to, to limit the number of abortions that happen. 
because the same thing that, that causes us to be pro-baby causes us to be against slavery in all its forms. It's the same thing, that people are made in the image of God. And, and human beings have an inherent dignity to them. And so, church, I would argue that it, the right fight for us is anything that contends for what God says is right. And so, yes, we're, we want to be pro-life, and yes, we want to participate in that, but we also want to say anything that would lead to human slavery of any kind, either from work or in sex work or whatever, the church needs to stand against those things. And I would argue that our primary task is not even that. It is, it is to seek and save the lost by making disciples that make disciples. That's our job. That's the fight. And anything that distracts you from that is a distraction. It needs to be treated as such. So sometimes that means as part of that process, we have to go after the root causes of brokenness. There's, there's legitimate reason as we seek to seek and save the lost by making disciples that make disciples to go after the root causes of poverty because poverty is such a huge contributor to sin. If someone's starving, it's, it's a whole lot easier to justify stealing some bread, right? If the justification for the stealing is gone if they've got enough food. See what I'm saying? So there, there are ways to get involved that way too. But Megiddo teaches us that we need to be in the right fight. It also teaches us that we need to choose the right battlefield. We need to choose the right battlefield. Megiddo is mentioned one time in the New Testament, maybe. Some scholars think that there's a reference to Megiddo in Revelation 16. Look at that with me. Revelation chapter 16, starting in verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs, they came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They're demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Now, the, the, the speaker switches. It had been John. Here he's quoting Jesus. Look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and shamefully exposed. Then they gathered, so it goes back to John here, then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Many scholars have identified this place of Megiddo with this Armageddon. And the reason why is that in Hebrew, Har, is the, H-A-R, is the word for mountain or hill. And they, are, they say that Megiddo is like the, um, in Greek it's Mag Megadon. In Greek, uh, Magadon. And that this, it, that's what John is referring to. Har, Magadon, Armageddon. You see how that all kind of blurs together? Okay. So we have to ask the question, is it John's intent to communicate the, this, the reputation of this place? Many scholars say that it is. I would argue that the best ones say that it isn't. Here's why. The ancient site of Megiddo was abandoned during the Persian period, which stretched from 539 to 333 BC and remained that way even into the time of Jesus. So for 500 years before Revelation was even written at the end of the first century, you see, in, in John's time, in Jesus' time, the place that guarded the trade route had been moved. They abandoned that site and they moved it a little further south and west. So is this the place where the last battle for, for, you know, will be fought at the end of time? It's possible. It is. And as I stated at, in our Approaching the Apocalypse series, it's not much of a fight. I mean, Jesus shows up and 
it's over, the game over, right? Like there's not a fight. But this is, they say, this is where, you know, all the armies of the world, that's what the text says, right? All the armies of the world will be gathered. So if you're going to be literal in your understanding of that, you're, you, you fall victim to having to do the math. If you're going to say that that's literally true, you have to do the math. So I did the math. The Valley of Jezreel, or Megiddo, here's a picture of it, is about 540 square miles. So this is a view kind of from the, the top of the tell there, uh, looking out. There's another view that's a panoramic. Let me show you that one. Yeah, there you go. So this area is about 345,600 acres, 540 square miles. All right. Now, so let's do the math. If you took just the United States armed forces, right, all six branches, there are six now because we have a space force. Um, if we would have had that when I was a kid, I would have enlisted. That is awesome. Uh, if you, all six branches, all right, that, that comprises about 1.4 million people. Now, you don't just, when, when the American military goes in, they don't just come in with tents. You've got a base. You've got an airstrip. You've tanks. You've got guns. You have barracks. You have a mess hall. You've got 1.4 million people. China's military is just shy of 2.2 million. India's is 1.45 million. Russia's is about a million. Those are the top four. There is just no way that, that every military on the planet and all the stuff that comes with them will fit in that space. There's just not room. This is, is 540 square miles if you took all, just America's military bases and all the land that they occupy is 26 million. Now, a lot of that's wide empty, like an Air Force base that's just empty country so they have room to do their stuff. There's, this doesn't, it just doesn't fit. The math doesn't work in this favor. And let's talk for a little bit about the name of this place. As I said, many modern um, interpreters identify Armageddon with the, this Galilean fortified city of Megiddo. It kind of has that reputation, right? They, it's, it's, a, it's a national park. Here's the brochure, right? And they even mention it in here. This is where the last battle will be fought. Like, they, 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 they trade on that. Okay. But 40 years ago, Alan F. Johnson wrote something to, that, to my knowledge, has gotten like zero press. I find it incredibly compelling. In the Expositor's Bible Commentary on Revelation, he writes this, It is surprising that no one has suggested taking Megadon as deriving from the secondary sense of the Hebrew Gedad, which means to gather in troops or bands. The simple way in Hebrew to make a noun from a verb is to prefix a ma, M-A, to the verbal form. Thus we have maged, meaning a place of gathering in troops, and the suffix o, which in Hebrew means it makes it possessive, his yielding his place of gathering in troops. I don't know that John is talking about a literal place. I think he's taking that name and its symbolic meaning in Hebrew to describe this place's reputation as a place of battle. Now here's the thing that until recently escaped me. Megiddo is only 15 miles from Nazareth. How many times in his life do you think Jesus walked by this place? How many times did John, who also grew up in Galilee, walk by this place? 
There's a spring of water there. When you go to Megiddo, part of the tour is to go down this steel stairwell down to the well that's there that was inside the fortified walls back in the day so that they could have water. And it's awesome. And you're like there. And it's like, who wants to be the first one to go down the dark, scary hole? Oh, me, me, I want to. And you go down the stairs and you feel like Indiana Jones for a second. There's water, and so it's possible that Jesus, as he toured Galilee, preaching and teachings in the synagogues, camped out with his disciples at the base of this abandoned hill. In his time, it was abandoned because there was water there. They they know this place's reputation, and that's why Jesus says in Revelation 16, he pronounces a blessing on those who are ready for his action to come like a thief in the night and save us and not to take their own action to take up arms and fight. Listen, church, you choose the right battlefield by understanding that even though Jesus would have walked by this place many, many times, he knew that his fight was in Jerusalem. Well, a hill outside Jerusalem, a place called Golgotha, where his cross was stood. So I guess what I want to tell you today, that is unless you're an active service member in our military, and if you are, thank you for your service, and if you're a veteran, thank you for your service, but unless you're an active service member, if your fights in this life do not lead to the salvation and or discipleship of souls, you're probably on the wrong battlefield. See, the prophet Zechariah wants you to remember all the bloodshed and all the tears that resulted from it when he writes in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. When was God pierced? And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. Well, a few times it's mentioned in the Old Testament. You see, what the prophet is trying to do is to get you to recall all the weeping that was done in this place, all the hardship, all the brokenness, all the sadness that ever happened because of this place. And he looks forward to a time when God's people will turn back to him in repentance and, and weep in the same way that they will be so broken over their own sin that they will weep just like all the weeping that happened in the city of Megiddo that was associated with this place because he goes on to say, in the very next verse in Zechariah 13 verse 1 on that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and impurity on the day that God was pierced a fountain was opened do you know what he's talking about church he's talking about the crucifixion he's talking about Good Friday and he's urging you to come back to God. This is a place of battle. And so many people get all wrapped up about the battle at the end of time, and they don't realize, no, you're in it now, church. You're fighting it now for the hearts and souls of humankind. As we continue to evangelize and discipleship, disciple our community. This place holds a lot of significance 
And, and Christians, a lot of people think that this is, this is where the final, this war will finally be resolved that's been, been going on since Lucifer rejected the authority of the Father. But if all you take from Megiddo is that life is a battle but God wins, I think you buried the lead. Because when I look at the cut, when I see this picture of this altar of human sacrifice, it teaches me that the most important battles are not fought with bombs or guns or swords or even sticks and stones. The most important battles are fought with ideas. And the most powerful victories are won not by taking someone's life, but by laying down one's own. And when we're at this place, it should teach us that Jesus won his most important battle, not by making the hit, but by taking one. And he did it for you because he loves you. He took what you deserve that day on the cross. And instead gave you eternal life when you acknowledge him as Savior and Lord. That's why we call it good news. And so the lesson of Megiddo is not that life is a battle but God wins. Rather, it is that the discerning among his followers will choose their battles and their battlefields wisely. So if you're here today and you've been fighting God like Paul, you've been kicking against the goads, I would encourage you to, he already won the fight for you. Why, are you, why do you keep fighting? Allow his victory to count for you. Confess him as Savior and Lord. Be baptized. Receive the Holy Spirit to come take away all your sins and make you right with God and make you ultimately right with your fellow man. <laughs> Acknowledge him as Savior and Lord. In just a second, we're going to sing and you're going to have an opportunity to do that. Maybe you're here today and, and you're, you're in the middle of a fight right now, you feel, and just want someone to pray with you and pray for you. We'd love to, I say just, that's an important thing. We'd love to do that. Maybe you're like, I'd, I'd kind of like to talk to somebody about this. You can go to the next step room. We encourage you to go there. One of our leaders will be in there to meet with you to just kind of help think, you think through like what that might look like in your life. Listen, church, we got to fight the right fight and we got to be on the right battlefield. And that fight is for the hearts and souls of our community. And I just want to encourage you to be, be in prayer. I just taught our wired class right before I came in here and encourage them. Do you, are you praying for lost people every day? God has been convicting me of this lately. Are you, is there someone you know that doesn't know Jesus that is on your prayer list every day to pray that they would come to know Christ? That's the battle. We, you read it earlier when we read from Ephesians 6. We fight that battle on our knees every day. And so I would encourage you today to make a commitment as you walk out of here to fight his war with his weapons in his way. We're going to stand and sing together. You respond as God leads you today.